the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about taking a dive into the mess, into the gray and the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or at 1160hope.com. And uh, Brian, yesterday was a pretty heavy day content-wise, mm-hmm. at least for us. I think, you know, we try to keep an even balance of lighthearted and heavy, and I felt like yesterday there was just a lot of topics with uh, just a lot of gravity behind them, not the least of which was this horrendous massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, and the now 50 people who were killed in two mosque shootings uh, in a single day. And one of the things that, um, well, I mean, first and foremost, just just broke my heart in so many different ways. And to see the world sort of respond uh, with this kind of unified grief. And now, and now obviously, there's debates about... Um, about gun control laws and the ways that people should be restricted. There's also conversations about the role of the internet. You know, this attack was live streamed and there's all sorts of, you know, other questions about the responsibilities of, uh, of YouTube, you know, nudging certain content towards viewers and do they have a responsibility to police any of that? And uh, in light of that, I've been seeing a whole bunch of other news out of uh, Nigeria. And this one, this one story I found says another, 10 Christians killed in Kaduna State as carnage continues in Nigeria, um, which brings the toll now up to over 130, it sounds like. And often I, I see this kind of stuff. So this this massacre happened on Friday, and uh, the the world erupts. And then, and then I begin to see these articles about what's going on in Nigeria. Uh, and, and oftentimes what's sort of associated with that shares, like, why— Okay, so we're mourning 50 people at these mosques here, but what about the Christians over here? Right. You know, and that, that often is sort of the, um, that's that's the presentation. Like, oh, why are we mourning this when it's it's way worse over here? Yeah. And and that's obviously messy for a number of reasons. But, like, for me, it's like, oh, yeah, why, we should be grieving both, I think. Yeah. But it does bring some interesting questions to the surface, though. Like, how do we, how do we one, even realistically grieve when it just seems like, Every single day, it's crazy. There's some kind of carnage, or I mean, even just starvation statistics globally are absolutely devastating. One, so how do you actually allow space to grieve when it just seems like it's a never-ending avalanche? And two, does grief look differently for a people group that you associate with versus one that you don't? Yeah, so it's just overwhelming, right? Like you start reading 140 with 160 houses destroyed, and 
it becomes, like you said, a huge wake-up call of, like, man, there are literally Christians being persecuted around the world that is just not even on my radar or our radar. And it can't all be on our radar, right? Like, we got to go about our right, lives. we got to right. live our lives. And, of course, if this happened in the next town over, it would be a different response than half the world away. Uh, but it is a reminder and a reason for to, to draw us at least to prayer and to grief to go, man, there's brothers and sisters being killed and martyred for their faith or just being killed um, in Nigeria and other places. And then you just you, you force yourself to read the story because the easy thing is to go, you know what, I'm going to put my head in the sand and pretend, hey, as long as this isn't happening in America, I don't have to worry about it. Right. And, and uh, that's just not the case. And so. Uh, it's like a couple years ago, I had a chance. We we do work at our church with uh, with an organization called Africa New Life in Rwanda, and I got a chance uh, to go there. And part of going there is to relive the genocide from you know twenty thirty years ago that over a million people died in a month's time. Gosh! And they take you to these museums and stuff, and you're sitting there going, "This is amazing," and I don't want to be here. Right? <laughs> it's right. kind of that same feeling, and that's what it is with this kind of stories. And so. Yeah, you know, we have to do all we can to still allow tragedy and senseless tragedy uh, to touch something in us and not become numb to us, whether it be a school shooting here, uh, or, you know, a, a massacre across the globe. We still have to care. And then to your second question, that's a tricky one, because I want to have great empathy uh, and sadness and grief and anger about what happened at the Muslim mosques Um you know, over the weekend. And so do I view them differently or should I view them differently? Probably not. But there is something that strikes a little bit different. I'm not even saying it's a more important chord, but a different chord when it's when it's a brother or sister in Christ who are dying for their faith because there's it's kind of a family feel. So I don't want to minimize the other one. Hopefully you hear that. It's not going, well, that one doesn't matter compared to this one. It's just it has a little bit. It touches a different nerve. Um, where it's kind of like, man, like there are still people dying for the name of Jesus Christ. Um, that 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 starts to blow your mind a little bit. So grief across the board, senseless tragedy. I think we did a good job yesterday talking, both with our guest and alone, about you know it's not about the Muslims dying or the Christians dying. It's a it, this is humanity problem, right? Right. This is a it's a neighbor problem. It's a love your neighbor. Um, I guess there's just a not a deeper layer, but another layer to it when it's a brother or sister in Christ, just the realization that that's still going on worldwide and and that that's not at all what we deal with here. Uh, it, it is kind of another layer that kind of blows your mind a little bit. And I, I appreciate you admitting that it strikes a different chord. My yep. question is, should it? Yeah, I don't know. And I, I'm trying to be very clear that I don't I'm trying to say when I say different, I don't mean like, oh, this one's more important yeah. than that one. I get that. Uh, there's just kind of a layer of context that um, that just kind of goes, man. It's you know people dying for their faith, uh, but also the Muslim people dying. I'm saying for they their were faith. dying for their faith yeah. too, and I think yeah. that sometimes is the criticism of Christianity is that we really only grieve the loss of our own. And yep. I, I'm not hearing you say that. Just to be clear, totally get but, what you're saying. But that is sometimes the criticism. Like, wow, you guys really. Really, really pull out the sackcloth and ashes no, when it's you. someone from your tribe, but when the rest of the world is, you know, and sometimes, I mean, historically, the church has blood on its hands too. For you know what I mean, like, and that that is, and that's maybe a conversation for another time. But I think for me, it is that's it's weird because you you know you mentioned we can't just bury our head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. My response typically is the opposite. I I tend to enter maybe too much into it. Interesting. I remember a few years ago. Gosh, this is going to sound off. I can't even remember which shooting it was. Yeah. But something happened on our home turf, mm-hmm. and 
it it was so devastating to me. And then like a couple days later is when um, Pokemon Go kind of exploded. Okay. And and then all of a sudden my newsfeed was just filled with Pokemon Go mania. And I posted something like, wow, it's it's actually really heartbreaking to me that like we, we would go from absolute grief to yep. Pokemon Go in a 24-hour period. We, we don't really sit in this. And I had some really... Um, some really wise friends say sometimes though the distraction is exactly the healthiest thing for us yeah, to do. Yeah. Really the subtext is Ian, sometimes you, you embody this so much Interesting. that you start to reel a little bit. Cause I, you know, I, I, I definitely can feel that there, there can be uh, my, my mind and heart can go to some dark places when, when I'm watching my newsfeed just blow up with just hate and fear yep. and pain. There, there are times where, yeah, maybe, maybe you need, a distraction right now. Maybe you just need, you know, to, to go for a run. And it's just fascinating that you and I, I think, uh, maybe have I think so. different impulses there. For me, you ask, is it a different feel for me if it's these Christians across the globe versus, like, say, the Muslim at the mosque? Uh, interestingly, I don't think it has. I don't think I feel differently just laying my cards on the table. Uh, and there's probably other people who feel this way. For me, it's not that I feel more deeply about the Christian one happening in Nigeria versus the mosque happening uh, in New Zealand. For me, the differentiation tends to be if it happened in America or not. Yeah, I don't, quite frankly, give much thought to the one in Nigeria or New Zealand in my day-to-day life, right? Yeah. And that's where I've been convicted when I put my head in the sand. It, when it happens here, whether it be a school shooting, a mosque shooting, a church shooting, a concert or whatever, when it happens, as you just used the term, on our home turf, yeah. that that's the one that hits me on a much deeper level. And then I start to feel guilty when I see these other ones going, well, I haven't thought about Nigeria. That's crazy. Like. Um, so for me, it tends to be America versus not, not really Christian versus not. And uh, I wonder how many other people feel that way. Like, and I know that that gets driven also by like our news feed, like CNN or whatever, right. when it happens here, we're getting flooded with that imagery and we're getting flooded with that when it happens overseas, it's a blip on the, it might even just be a crawl along the bottom. Right. Um, so that's kind of the way it usually works out for me. And that's why this, this show quite frankly has been good for me as we confront ourselves with these things. It causes me to have to think about them and pray for these people and talk to people like we did yesterday, and I think it's helpful. Yeah, I think uh, it is. It can be dangerous for the Christ follower when we realize that our world is not the world. Yep. I think when when our vision becomes too myopic, and you know, we both grew up in missionary churches. I think a gift that was uh, given probably to both of us was this planting of the seed that, like the big C church, or or even outside the church, the, yep. just the globe at large is something that God cares about, not just your little corner of the earth. And to keep that in balance, you know, whether it's to avoid burying your head in the sand or what, you know, what I'll often do is just, just be overwhelmed yep. with, you know, the, the devastating grief globally to, I think what you're just saying is to engage deeply in both and not just sort of be passive recipients. Like, well, I guess I'm upset about whatever's in my newsfeed or whatever's on the crawl, at the bottom of the screen, like to be Correct. more proactive about yeah, I want I want to grieve for things both locally and abroad, yeah. and also maybe keep a healthy tension between how how much um, attention I give to these different things in my life, That's which good. is no, no small task. <laughs> a conversation I'm sure that we'll continue to have for a long, long time. Well, you're listening to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian from Brian. A couple of weeks ago, I told you the name of this band, and you said you'd committed to memorize who yeah. this was. Any chance you remember who this is? Not. We could sit here for the next nine minutes of this segment and not no, even close. Not even close. Not even like a letter. Give like me a, a, give me a rhymes. What's what's the, what's the first letter? 
M. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's Modest Mouse. I'm going to try again in two weeks. Modest Mouse. Mo- <laughs> modest Mouse. Okay? I, mean, I'm, I believe in you. I'm hopeful. <laughs> I I, you you memorize sermons. I think you can do this. Modest Mouse. It's a mouse. That's not arrogant. He's, he's, he's modest. You're he's, good at getting rubbing. The Humble Rat. The Humble Rat. <laughs> that's the band that Brian and I are starting. The uh, Humble that's Rat. That's good. Okay, so you, uh, you stumbled across a story uh, from Seacoast Church yes. that kind of piqued both of our interest for uh, some obvious reasons. But why, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's, what's going on so there? So Seacoast Church, really big church uh, uh, in South Carolina, I believe, and... Uh, I had maybe heard of the coast. This, I'm, I'm told, yeah. <laughs> at least one of the campuses is on the coast. <laughs> Probably the first campus, right? Right. So started by a guy named, by the name of Greg Surratt. And, um, you know, if you're a pastor in the church world, you kind of know of this church. It's a big church. And they've had just some crazy stuff going on. And then he wrote a blog post to kind of talk about it. And I thought it was a really interesting blog post. So he says, as is our yearly custom, we started a church-wide 21-day fast on the first Wednesday of January it's something we do to jumpstart our year spiritually. The goal is to get closer to God and provide distance from the things that get between us and our relationship with him. So really, mm. you know, cool to see this big church. They, yeah. we, we start every year with a fasting and prayer. And they decided to, this year, take an angle also of of praying for healing, praying for healing for people who are sick, kind of driven by the fact that just before this started, uh, his daughter and his his son is the lead pastor now of the church. So his okay. daughter, the lead pastor's sister, had been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. And he said they invited a couple friends from Nashville uh, to come lead with it. And he said, we couldn't have imagined what happened that night. They worshiped, they shared some scripture, a few stories of healing, and then they began to pray. And I just love this next line. It says, we ended seven hours later. Wow. Like sometimes we have trouble praying for like 20 minutes in our churches, right? But we ended seven hours later with at least 200 people reporting being healed. We saw unexplainable things We've been hearing stories on Facebook over and over again. When we announced a second night of healing prayer a little over a month later, nearly 3,000 people showed up, thousands more online. The same thing happened with hundreds of people reported healing. And then the rest of the blog post, he basically goes on to try to unpack for people what they think is going on. You know, are we now Pentecostal? Are people actually being healed? What about the people not being healed? It's not like everybody has been healed, and the guy does a really good job with it. But, man, when I read this story, and then I, I'd start, you know, you go kind of into the deep dive on the Internet and start reading people's accounts and this and that, um, it got me. It feels like a like a early church revival going on as yeah. you read it. And there are a couple things that, point, that, that stood out to me. One, just that this kind of stuff still happens. Like, sometimes I... I, I fully believe in my mind that this stuff happens, but sometimes I functionally live like this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then just the um, the power of prayer, but the reliance of prayer, right? I read that line where it said, and then seven hours later we finished. And yeah, right. Just kind of this expectation with prayer. And I read these and I get really excited and I get really convicted as a pastor, like, huh, like I don't ever call my people to anything like this. Mm. And, and so... Um, and not, not to even say that if we did this kind of stuff, that God would react in the same way that he is, you know, God can do where, what he pleases, where he pleases. Um, but man, I read this story and it was really encouraging. It was humbling. It was motivating. And it's just cool to, it's cool to read things like this. Why, why don't you think you, uh, call your people to this? I think it goes back to what I said before. I think in my mind, I believe these things, but functionally I live, you know, day to day, like, you know, my life is not reliant upon prayer. And I think I grew up in a pretty conservative church, a pretty 
conservative home where nobody would ever say God doesn't heal, God doesn't do this. But I don't think there. I'm not sure I grew up in a church with an expectation that God works this way. Does that make sense? Um, and so that then kind of just kind of becomes who you are. So I think my Christianity can tend to be pretty academic, mm. um, pretty just kind of it's just part of my life. And then you read these stories and you get kind of shook like, oh, you know, um, I do think I grew up with a healthy fear and skepticism of Pentecostalism. Um, so I think all of that plays in. But I just think that maybe you disagree. I think for me as a pastor, the biggest thing is you just kind of get into the into the rat race, into the rhythm of like, all right, this is what we do. Sunday comes, we preach, we do this, we meet with people, we pray, we do this. And and with expectation that like if we really fasted and prayed before God, he might just blow our minds. Well, yeah, and it's one of the things that I love about this. Like we're starting a series on uh, on Sunday sort of based off of Scott McKnight's book called uh, Open to the Spirit. We're just calling yeah, it like Open to the, yeah. to the idea that, hey, um, even if you're a skeptic or you were raised maybe like, like you know, Brian was, just be, would you be open to the possibility yeah. that God maybe wants to do more in your life than you previously anticipated? And I think part of what I love about this story here is how accessible it is. Yeah. Um, in fact, throughout the throughout the whole blog, it's sort of like, even, even little details, like 200 people reported being healing. Yeah. It's 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 leaving it open to hey we know that sometimes this stuff can get sensationalized we know that sometimes stuff can get um, over dramatized and there's there's skepticism and there you know we have I think some some of that can be really healthy but I think a lot of that can be a barrier too like uh, I think of my own pride or my own unwillingness to like really truly open myself up to even say you know from a stage we want we want to be led by the spirit but then when you look at like Ian Simpkins's calendar. You're like, okay, where's how where's, is the spirit? Is, yes. Where in your calendar here is yeah. the spirit leading? Like, I I don't know personally as a pastor, I want to I want to keep putting myself in positions where if God like doesn't show up, I'm going to look like an idiot. Yes, because the truth of the matter is, so often, and maybe maybe you're like this, we we build safety nets kind of behind the scenes to catch us in case this thing doesn't pan out Correct. well, right? As, yes. and, and that has a lot to do with ego or insecurity or, or doubt, which, you know, I think we've all probably struggled with, but like this idea of what if, what if we just opened ourselves to the possibility that God wants to do a whole lot more in and through us than we ever anticipated. And to see people healed has a, cause the story goes on to talk about like, man, people are like beating down the doors now yep. to, 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 to get a glimpse of what God is doing there. Yes. And I think, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's how the Spirit of God moves. That it has nothing to do with like, oh, really catchy series or a cool yep. graphic. Or yep. a, and it's like, no, no, no. Something other is taking place there. And even a skeptic, I think, wants to be a part of that. Yes. And they, and they want to know. Yeah, you, you read the New Testament and that it, that is the pattern by which it goes. But I also love, like you said, uh, the kind of uh, just truthfulness of his blog post. He's going, we don't really know what's going on. And so... He says, I right. believe that everyone we pray for is healed. And immediately the skeptic is like, come on. Yeah, no. right, but then right. he goes, some are healed immediately through prayer. Some are healed progressively by doctors and medicine. Right, right. And some are healed eternally by entry into heaven. Like they're not making these promises. Come here and your cancer will go away. Yeah, totally. They're, they're basically saying, come here and meet with God with us and we'll see what he does. Hmm. Uh, and I love your phrase there, what if. Like it just, you know, my, my pastor brain kind of goes to, man, that'd be cool name of a sermon series. Like. Hmm. What if the things that are promised in Scripture and the things that are talked about in Scripture actually are still present? Yeah, right. Like, what if God still works in this way? What if God prayer is still powerful and effective? What if, and just kind of putting yourself out there and going yeah. and without that safety net, like you talked about, like, 
without the state without giving God an out all the time. Well, mm. uh, if God wills, and He might not do. Okay, sure. Like, we're we don't have to answer for God. Like we don't have to give everybody all the answers, and just instead saying, "Hey, we know that we're called to to pray and to live this way, and let's let's lean into it and let's see what happens." I, I've been really grateful for a a woman on our staff. Her name is Pat Masick, and she's been leading our prayer team uh, at the Yellow Box specifically with such uh, like courage and fervor. And one of the things that I'm, I'm embarrassed I never really did until uh, until she kind of started instructing us to do that is when we're praying for somebody else even, that before we start saying words, we let the person know, like, hey, I'm just going to be quiet for a little bit and just listen to God. Mm. Just, just, and it's and it's strange because it's just this thirty seconds of silence, you know. And as as pastors in particular, yep. we, we often just like to try to fill the silence. Yes, but like her instruction for us to just simply, hey, when you, if you're laying hands on somebody, somebody's asking for prayer, what what if we just said, hey, I'm a, I'm gonna just be quiet for a second and see if God doesn't speak, yep. see if He doesn't actually move or stir or something, and just even that creating that little of space. One is really convicting how hard it is to do. Yes, but two, how freeing it is. Like, oh right, this isn't. This isn't time for like Ian to pontificate exactly in prayerful language. We like, like to pray sermons, <laughs> right? Right. I want to actually invite the Spirit of God to be a part of what's happening yes. in this person's life, and I think that is that is such a uh, an important critical shift. Good, man. You know, hopefully, for all of us to to wrestle with. But my biggest takeaway from this is that's awesome. Praise yeah. God for this church, and yeah, I want to no see more of that in my own life. No kidding. Well, coming up next, here's a headline that I want you to grapple with: Church as we know it is over. Here's what's next. That's coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show trying to take a deep dive into the mess, the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, and creating space for dialogue, which means we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. We also now have a text line. Here's how it works. You text the number 68683, and then before you type your message, you type the word CG for common good, and then your message, your comment, uh, whatever you would like to share with and for us, we'd love to hear from you in that way, because ultimately, we'd love for the show to serve a bigger purpose to help all of us wrestle with these questions, wrestle with things that, uh, you know, is in the news, happening in our life, and parenting, and faith, and just being a human, so uh, we'd love to hear from you and engage with you in any way that you like. And uh, I mentioned that the the article I want to read, or at least talk about, uh, is entitled, Church as We Know It is Over, Here's What's Next. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty, I gotta be honest, as far as headlines go, that's a pretty good one. Yep. That's a pretty intriguing... Yeah, like, like, click. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm at least going to glance at it. So it's by Dave Adamson, and uh, I'll essentially summarize and kind of get your reactions, yep. because I feel like positions like this tend to be pretty polarizing, and I don't always know that that's the most helpful way forward. And he makes some pretty sweeping statements about like it's all this or never this or this is what's happening. Yep. You know, which you know I have a, I think a healthy skepticism too. But ultimately, uh, it seems like his thesis here is embracing the digital age. We need to let go of these old antiquated ideas of churches um, as physical spaces um, and embrace uh, streaming and online and you know taking pages out of other people. He, he's kind of Really, really giving a lot of accolades to churches who, of course, corrected early to sort of embrace yep. sort of the digital revolution. And uh, it does seem, though, like where where he loses me a little bit is that he's he's not just simply saying, oh, this is like another tool in our tool belt, but that like churches and pastors need to yep. just get over the fact 
that like buildings eventually are, are just not going to be all that important. Right. Um, it's all about the online community, the online content, and that's where we kind of need to all set our sights. Yeah. And for for the author here, and you can find this at foxnews.com, for the author here, it feels like the purpose of church is the is information. It is to right. um, it is the um, the transfer of information and of knowledge. And so, if that is the purpose of church, then I think he's on to something, right? Where are people going to get information and knowledge in our culture? It is online. It is it is fast. It is it is whenever it is accessible for you, whenever it is convenient for you. I think the pushback that. A lot of us as pastors have had, and a lot of people you and I have interacted with about this article is that we want to say the church is about a lot more than that. Yeah, right. Um, and that, yes, we do need this is not an either or. We do need to be engaging our people online, and a lot of churches have been slow to do that, um, whether it is to get information out or whether it is just to build community. But, uh, but we do believe that, in, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you could talk about it, you wrote an awesome. Uh, piece on Facebook recently in the last couple of days that got shared all around about Ecclesia being the, the gathered community, the gathered people. Yeah, right. And I, I think as we view, I'm pubbing your Facebook right now, your personal <laughs> Thanks, <man>. Facebook. <laughs> um, as we uh, begin to be reminded that the church is not a place that you go to, but it's a people that you belong to. It's a family. It's right. a community. Uh, I don't think you can get that solely by by giving people what they want online at their whenever they want it, and just acknowledge that people aren't going to come to a building and gather together. There is a middle ground. Like you and I had a great debate a couple of weeks ago, I think, where you pushed back on me and said, "You know, people do create community online, and yeah. so I want to be open for that." I just, I, I just not to the point where I'm going to be like, you know what. Scrap the building, scrap the gathering, scrap the call for people to gather together, because there is something more that happens when we gather together, right? We we celebrate communion together, and we pray and we worship together, and we see people take steps of faith in baptism, and we we sit under the word, and we just shake hands and gather. We we get to know each other. There's something that that online can never replace, in my opinion. It can it can augment. It can help. Um, but I don't think it can replace. Well, and I should mention too, in, in that post that you mentioned about Ecclesia, the the word meaning, you know, a gathered people, mm-hmm. that's not at the diminishment of physical space. Um, I think space matters. I think it was yep. Churchill who said, we form our spaces and our spaces form us, right? Yep. Like this idea that I think, a, I think a good theology of space is actually really important. It's something that we don't talk enough about, particularly maybe sort of in Western Protestantism. I think a lot of our more Orthodox brothers and sisters get it more right, or they, they, they at least think about it um, more often. But uh, like our program director, Marcus Brown, wrote a yep. big, long response to this article, and a lot of it I wanted to cheer mm-hmm. and say absolutely. And then there were other parts of it I thought, oh, I think I think he's missing it too. Like he sort of pits attractional and consumptional as the same, and I don't know that they are necessarily. Like you look at just the life of Jesus, a lot of what he did, quote, attracted people to him. Mm-hmm. Like is is that wrong if people are attracted to uh, a worship space, a worship gathering, and is that the same as pure consumption? I don't know that it is, but to, like to your point, like the word that's used most frequently for Jesus uh, when he's hanging out with his disciples, spending time with them, is the word diatribo. And one one of the definitions of diatribo is to to rub off on each other, mm. like to, it's like actual like yep. like rubbing shoulders. It's it means it's implying real physical like life together incarnational maybe we yep. could say however there's a lot that we do uh for better or for worse that doesn't look like 
the church in Acts that doesn't look like the ministry of Jesus. And we've, I think, been sort of okay with that mm-hmm. because we know that culture grows and progresses. And yep. so sometimes with it, so do we. But I do think, uh, particularly to Marcus's point, if the whole goal of the church is to disseminate information, then this article makes perfect sense. But I agree with him that that's not the goal of the church. It's not It's not the only goal of the church to simply convey information. And when we think that it is, when the whole goal is just clicks and likes and engagement, that, that I think can be really, really prob- that can be really problematic. But I do think there should be a shift in thinking, though. I think it, far too long, digital spaces have just sort of been seen as 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 peripheral. Yeah. And I think we're seeing more and more like, wow, this is a real a real opportunity, I think, for the church to step into that rather than rather than be afraid of it. Yeah. And how we do that, I think, is probably anyone's guess. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I do think that if the answer, if the goal is not only the transfer of information, but also convenience, right, like kind of like how we treat Netflix, like, all right, I will watch church when I get around to it, when it fits into my schedule. Yeah, right. I think that's dangerous. And right. that is that is not the purpose of the church, the gathered that's not the purpose of the community. You know, like if we're mm. using digital and stuff to to help people understand more or, you know, like you said, sometimes people have to work on Sunday morning or sometimes kid is sick or whatever yeah, else. Right, and right. We're actually allowing the using the Internet to allow people to stay connected to their church body. I think there's good there's there's good to that. And yeah. so I don't want to be the pastor who's like, you know, oh, let's ignore this whole Internet thing. Maybe it'll go away soon. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, But, man, this guy this guy kind of leaps for me to say (laughs) the church as we know it is over. If that were to be the case, then I don't think we understand church. Yeah, I I, I don't think we're grasping it and we're we're missing a major part uh, of what it is to be the gathered people. And to be fair, we're we're probably going to continue missing it for the rest of our lives. Like we, we none of us have perfectly cornered or nailed a full ecclesiology, a full doctrine of what the church yes. is and should be, which is part of what makes it beautiful. To, to me, honestly, I think that's part of what makes church so fascinating yep. is that um, when we, when I can look past the hurtful kind of schisms and divisions and say, man, there's there's a, some rich diversity in what our music looks like, what our spaces look like, what our, what our missiology looks like. Yep. I, I think it's worth celebrating those things. And uh, I think I don't know that we need to pit incarnational and attractional against each other because arguably Jesus is the most incarnational yes. and was also attractional in his ministry. Yep. At, at the very least, at least at the onset, maybe maybe that maybe it's worth talking about those things as a progression. Right. He didn't leave them at attractional. He called them to something much deeper than just simply, hey, come be entertained or come you know, share a meal with me. He, he's always drawing people deeper, which is what Jesus does, yep. I think, so brilliantly. But. You know, the way that you're talking about it is, is often how we talk about it at community is our, our digital platforms are, are meant to kind of point towards physical space Correct. because matter matters, right? Like it's worth for us. Oh, that's good. Actually, uh, that was a Marcus thing too. I, st- <laughs> I, I, I stole that. But I think that's really good. I think uh, it's it's worth reminding each other that, yes, this, this is a good yep. resource, but nothing can replace this sort of like shared space, shared yes. physical time together. And uh, I think we need to always make sure that we're making that a priority. And I think that's a great way to put it. Like, if if the digital space is meant to replace uh, being together, then that I think is is a misuse of the tool. If it's helping to build community and point people to that, then then I think we um, we would be just foolish not to start to think about how can we better leverage this for the sake of the kingdom, but also to connect people into deeper community and into the church. That's good stuff, man. Well, this has been a conversation that I'm sure again won't be the last time we have this particular conversation. 
And uh, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to engage with you. What do you think is the future of the church, both in our own backyard or maybe even globally? Where, where do you see it heading? And what are some things that we can be challenged by? That's what we're talking about today. And we're going to continue talking about that, I'm sure, for weeks to come mm-hmm. here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Dean Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. You can also now text us. Here's how it works. Text the number 68683. And then when writing your message, first write the letter CG for Common Good. And then your question, your comment, your anecdote, whatever... A pun. Pun. A riddle. A joke. I would like I like new jokes. <laughs> You're the first pastor ever, I'm sure, that needs new jokes. Hey, for the first time in my sermon the other day, uh, I used something from the show. Oh, you did? Yeah. I talked about Lewis Dooley. Right. Yeah. I did. Great was it was, and it was such a perfect, uh, we were talking about God's grace and the danger when you don't see your need for it. Yeah. So kind of out of the book of Jonah a little bit. And yeah. That oftentimes, those of us who've been believers for a long time, we... One of the great dangers is that we lose sight of the fact that we even still need God's grace in our life. Oh, like, man. And uh, I talked about his line, basically, when I asked him. I don't know if you remember. I asked him, like, are, are, prisoner, are guys in prison receptive to the gospel? Yeah. And he just started laughing. And he's like, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. And <laughs> he talked about how they have nothing, no pride, no nothing. Right. And I, I used it in my sermon. I was like, it's the first time I've taken content from the That's show. So good. And it has entered into the sermon. I felt kind of good about that. If, if you missed it, that was an interview from last week with That's a man so named good. Lewis Dooley who was uh, sentenced to life in prison plus 100 years, had this, like, miraculous conversion, and just wrote a book called Prison Saved My Life. Yep. I recommend it for everybody, and uh, I recommend it for everybody as well, because <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. It's an incredible story. He's just an awesome dude. Oh, I got the book wrong. I told, I told our congregation, I got the first part, Prison Saved My Life, and then I said, so everyone should try it. So everyone should try it. <laughs> but That's apparently he enough. said I'd recommend it for everybody. Yeah, I think I think Google will correct that I got, search. I got the main there. part. But yeah, it was fun, and it worked perfectly. It was the first time I've had that crossover. So anyway. That's awesome. Okay, so I uh, came across this story by a man named Carl Vaders. He's a an author. He actually just recently wrote a, a really great book about um, like mechanics for small churches. And uh, the title of his of his blog here, Christianity Today, is Four Questions to Consider Before Commenting on a Controversial Subject. Mm-hmm. So, man, this, I, this is solid gold to me because it's it's he's not going after any particular issue. He's just trying to give some tools for how do we engage online. First two lines reeled me in. He says, everybody has an opinion and everyone is entitled to one. Yep. So I, I appreciate that posture. Like, man, listen, I'm not asking you not to have an opinion. But the whole point of the blog here is like, how do we, are there some metrics? Is there, is there some etiquette maybe we can all begin to agree uh, to abide by when engaging, particularly these controversial issues? Because you and I have both seen, yep. I don't think we've gone a day without seeing something online blow up and get really ugly pretty quickly. And so I think these are really, really great rules to uh, to at least consider. So if you're, if you're listening along, maybe write these ones down or find the article yourself. Um, and I think what I like, before you read them, what I like that he said was, this is not him telling us. These are the questions you all should ask yourselves. But he said, after having participated in online conversations for several years, I have developed four questions I ask myself before putting my opinion right. out there to others. This is him going... You know what? When I weigh commenting on things, this is what I ask myself, and let me share that with you. Instead of going, "Hey, you guys shouldn't do this," he's going, "This is how. This is the lens through which I look at controversial subjects." Totally. So the first question uh, he suggests that we consider is, "Am I interested in this?" Say, so this seems like a given. After all, why would anyone consider commenting on something they're not actually interested in? Yet we all have circumstances in which we're asked to comment. 
by someone who tags us or gives us, you know, quote, that look in a committee meeting as they wonder why we haven't chimed in yet, which I totally understand that. I've certainly looked back about, oh, I I actually, (laughs) I don't really care about this issue. Why am I weighing in on this? And then those are often the threads that kind of (laughs) spin out of control. And then I look back like, why am I even in this? Why is this making me so mad? (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, that's the million dollar question. Why am I so, why am I so worked up about this right now? I I don't know if you had that experience before in commenting online. I have, I have. Second one was this. Do I have any expertise in this field? And listen to these, man. Never, he writes, never have so many people had so many strong opinions about subjects they have absolutely no expertise in. Just because you can comment doesn't mean you should comment. Oh, snap. Like, put that on your computer. Like, somebody write that right there, right? Uh, And so he always asked himself, he said, do I actually have any expertise in this field, or am I just riled up about it? Sometimes we mistake one for the other. Do I actually have anything to say, or am I just saying something out of emotion? Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I'll push back on this one a little bit. I don't know that it always has to be about quantitative or qualitative expertise. I think uh, if we're talking about an experience or this has been my interaction with this yep. topic. You, you don't have to necessarily have a doctorate in the subject matter Agreed. to have a valid uh, contribution to that. But we've all been dialogue. in those Facebook dialogues where the person is like speaking oh, authoritatively totally. and you're like, you only think you're authoritative because you've been on Facebook. <laughs> and, and it kind of blows me away. Like I think of uh, two of my brothers, one, one's a doctor, one's a lawyer, and they're both just incredibly smart individuals. A doctor, a lawyer, and a pastor. Yeah, walked into a bar, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> But I, the amount of times I've seen people go after them in their area of expertise, yep. like, blows my mind. Like, because <laughs> they, they both are not just smart people, but they know their subject matter. So for someone to, like, go after my one brother and try to, like, you know, school him on, on legal stuff or uh, on anatomical stuff, like, it just is, to me, hey, just, they're the expert. Just yeah. let, them, let them be the expert. And I feel that way sometimes. Totally. Churches get, like, just... People always have opinions about churches and think they know exactly how to run them. And I, I occasionally want to write back on Facebook and just be like, we've done this for a while, you know. Like, <laughs> I, might, I don't have all the answers, but I've thought these things through for a while. <laughs> See, yeah, I, I, I so rarely have that impulse. <laughs> oh, man. I never write it, though. Maybe, that's, maybe that's just my own insecurities. <laughs> uh, question three, can I comment without making a personal attack? Gosh. Nope. So he goes on. No. Okay. Brian can't. <laughs> nope. If you want to find Brian, he's on Facebook. Um he says, you're an idiot is not helpful and is probably untrue and is definitely unchristian. That's good. Um, they're an idiot isn't any better. Just because someone isn't in, the, uh, isn't in on the conversation doesn't make it right to abuse them with personal insults, even if they're in the public eye. Their fame does not exempt us from acting in a Christ-like uh, way toward them. Famous people are also made in the image of God, and they deserve the same respect that you would want to receive yourself. That one is so good and it's so really convicting good. and so often, I mean, even honestly with some of the uh, the college bribery stuff, you know, all these funny memes get created in about yes. 40 seconds yes. and I, I find myself wanting to share them and I think, oh man, as much as I'm like really kind of annoyed by like behaviors of certain, yep. you know, celebrities, like they're still an image bearer and I, I, especially as pastors, I think we need to model how do we talk about people even if they're not in the thread? It's such an such an important thing to consider. It's really good. The last one, and he wrote, this is a huge one for me. Is my comment likely to have any positive influence? Like if we if we ask that question before hitting send on anything or post on anything, he says, even if I'm interested, passionate, have some expertise and can speak my mind with clarity and kindness, I won't add to the conversation unless my comment has at least some hope of having a greater positive influence 
than than a negative one. And what that often means is taking the conversation offline. Yeah, totally. What that means is kind of contacting somebody on the side and saying, hey, I, I have some thoughts about this, but let's uh, let's talk about this offline. I think this of all four is so huge. Is my entering into this, what in the end can I, how can I impact this positively yep. rather than just impacting it? Totally. What it, positive influence can and, I have? And I've certainly been accused in threads where somebody's saying something pretty awful yeah. um, of, of staying silent in the face of evil. And what often those people don't realize is that I, I wasn't staying silent. I actually was having a conversation with them yeah. either privately in a message or I picked up the phone and uh, and to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like yes. there's, there's sometimes uh, it's easy for us to kind of jump to assumptions about someone's level of yeah. engagement. And I, okay, so these uh, these four questions are so good. If you're just joining us, I want to read them again. Yep. Four questions to consider before commenting on a controversial subject. Number 1, am I interested in this? Number 2, do I have any expertise in this field? Number 3, can I comment without making a personal attack? And number 4, is my comment likely to have any positive influence? I think if we could actually interact with and start to engage with those questions, man. <laughs> Online would be a much more much beautiful place. place. <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm convicted by all four of those. Absolutely, I'm, I'm going to look to implement those a little bit more in my life. Well, this has been the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about talking about stuff that matters and hopefully creating space to disagree, to argue even, to, to not have easy answers because uh, it's probably more true more often than I like to admit. Mm-hmm. It's easy to have to pretend like you know what's going on, and sometimes I just want to assume the posture of a learner. And uh, it's been one of the things I love most about the show, actually, is there's been so much... Um, content and conversation on things that I'd never even considered mm-hmm. that I feel like I've, I've just grown as a, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband. And, uh, and hopefully that's been your experience too. We'd love to interact with you. You can find us on Facebook at the common good radio show. You can go to 1160hope.com. The show is podcasted. You can also text us at six, eight, six, eight, three, that's six, eight, six, eight, three. And then in the actual message body, first type CG for common good. And then your question, your comment, your anecdote, your pun, whatever you have to share with us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, this story in the New York Times kind of piqued my interest. It's a long one. Yep. But it says how parents are robbing their children of adulthood. Mm. And it kind of comes on the heels of this uh, college bribery scandal that uh, it seems like everybody's been talking about. But it, there's some really interesting kind of nuggets tucked away in this story. Why don't you, why don't you fill us in a little bit of what, what's going on here? It is. A, I would encourage you, especially if you have kids. Like, you know, my kids are – I've got a freshman in high school, a fifth grader, and a fourth grader. So I'm kind of entering into this world – uh, like you said, it's at the New York Times. It just came out yesterday or the day before called How Parents Are Robbing Their Children of Adulthood. And basically, so you know in the in the 
uh, last decade, there was this phrase that came up called helicopter parenting. Right. And what helicopter parenting is, the parents who just hover above everything, they're always present. And, right, right, and you right. see this. Like, as your kids get older, you see this. I coached all of my kids' teams, and so did my wife. And we, you, there were certain parents who were always content. They were always there. They were always trying to hover <laughs> over everything their kids did. And you yeah. would see the result of this in their kids. And it always felt like helicopter parenting was kind of like, oh, that's like the worst it could be. But now there's this new phrase, and they taught that's what this article is about called snowplow parenting. Or yesterday you referred to it as lawnmower parenting. Right. What snowplow parenting is, is now parents are going ahead of their kids and trying to clear all obstacles away from them. Right. And you think of this in a young age, but what this article highlights is this is happening when kids are in college mm. or even out of college. And so the overall premise is that this is doing your kids no favors. It's not allowing them to know what it means to be an adult, to experience failure, Mm. uh, to struggle. So let me read you this poll that this is kind of centered around. Uh, In a poll by the New York Times of a nationally representative groups of parents of children ages 18 to 28. So just the fact they're calling you 28-year-olds children is something. But um, three quarters. So this is not little kids. This is 18 to 28 Three quarters of these parents had made appointments for their adult children, like doctor visits or haircuts, Mm. and the same share had reminded them of deadlines at school. 11% said they would contact their child's employer if their child had an issue. Wow. 16% of those with children in college had texted or called them to wake them up so they didn't sleep through a class. 8% had contacted a college professor or administrator about their child's grades or a problem they were having and it goes on and on and basically it's painting a picture of this that in our culture and to be honest with you there seems to be a correlation with wealth in this that's what you saw in this bribery scandal right um but there there is an increase it's not a decrease uh, helicopter parenting has now turned into the snowplow parenting where parents don't ever cut the cords with their children hmm. and instead are going ahead of them in their late teens in their early 20s in their mid 20s and still having like this kind of like the, the claws in them and trying to dictate things and make things easier for them. Huh. And what this article paints a picture of is you're doing no favor for your children. It's just a fascinating article. Well, and just to be fair too, like I, I know we say it every week, but like my, my oldest is, you know, less than a year and a half. Yep. So first and foremost, not an expert. You're a helicopter so parent. I, yeah, yeah, I am because he climbs on everything right now. There you I, ha- go. I have to or he falls. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. So just as a caveat, I, I'm I'm not coming at this from any perspective of an expert. Uh, but I can say, though, that I, I am really grateful for parents that let me fail, yeah. um, that let me feel frustration, that, that forced me to problem solve on my own. And I'm sure that there was temptation to... To either hover or lawnmower, like I, 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 they're human. I'm sure that yep. that inclination was there, but it does feel a little bit like in this uh, everybody gets a trophy culture yep. that this is sort of the uh, logical place that it would lead. Yep. Like, why is everyone? And again, I've heard people make okay cases for everyone getting a trophy. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of showing my cards. Like, no, it's an important lesson to learn at 12 that you're team lost yep and that's okay and you're not any less of a person because of it yep. and you should go back and train and rehearse or whatever that thing is yep. sometimes you don't get the gold you don't get the blue ribbon yep. you don't get the golden trophy and um i think that it it is more problematic to me to see like you were saying the correlation between 
uh, wealth and some of this, what are they calling it? Snow plowing? Snow, snow blowing. blowing. Yep. Snow blowing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just really hoping spring is here. Somebody <laughs> mentioned this snow is giving me a little bit of an aneurysm. But like, I, I just think um, to recognize the temptation in us as parents to want to clear the path, n- not for... I don't think it's usually for selfish motives. I think it's because nope. we really care for our kids. Yes. And part of what this article is asserting is that, like, that's actually an, an unhelpful, borderline toxic way to parent. You think yep. you're giving your kid a leg up, but you're actually, like, embedding some practices and rhythms that are actually not helpful for them at all yeah. that, that maybe are more appropriate, you know, in their preteen years. But if you don't wean away from them, yeah. you know, the, you're talking about these polls from 18 to 28-year-olds. To me... And maybe this is more of a cultural thing. Like that's that's too much. It's yep. too far. Yeah, you need to be hovering at a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. We call that neglect if you're not. Right. And I feel this, man, with a with a daughter in high school now, with a uh, fifth grader and a fourth grader. I want them to succeed. I want them to be happy. I want them to have the best. That, you know, I I feel this. It's. And then if you add on top of it wealth where you do actually have the ability to clear the pathway for them, right? you know, that's probably nothing. But the article goes on to say learning to solve problems, take risks, and overcome frustration are crucial life skills. Yeah. Many child development experts say, and if parents don't let their children encounter failure, the children don't acquire them. And then it goes on. Listen to this. Snowplowing has gone so far that many young people are in crisis, lacking these problem-solving skills and experiencing record rates of anxiety. There are now classes to teach children to practice failing at college campuses around the country and even for preschoolers. And so the takeaway, I think, for us as parents, if you're a parent out there, is like is to self-evaluate. Like, am I am I one of these parents who's not teaching my kids what it looks like to fail? They should still know they're loved all the time. Like, that's what it means to fail. Like, I'm failed, but I'm still loved. Um, and then what are some steps I need to take, like, to to kind of loosen the grip? If if I realize I've got my grip too much on my kids, right? what's the what's the move at whatever age they are to begin to help them appropriately begin to grow and understand these things? Well, I, and I think, too, it's worth noting that um, how we allow our children to differentiate their identity from their performance mm-hmm. is like the critical act of parenting in general. Mm-hmm. That fa- failure is inevitable, and that doesn't reflect on your character, right. it, on your identity exactly. as, a, as an image bearer. And I think, what a cool opportunity. Maybe that's even a question to ask your kid. Like, I, I think so often at the end of the day, we ask, well, you know, what'd you do? What'd you yep. learn? Those are the go-to. Are we asking our kids, hey, where'd you struggle? Where do, you, where do you feel like you fell flat on your face? Um, not to elevate or glorify that, but to, to to begin to embed in them, like, this is a safe place to talk about these yes. things. And as the moment that you share with me this failure, this thing that you really struggle with, I'm going to remind you how loved you are, yep. how, how known you are, to, to know, to begin to develop patterns of like, hey, this is not only something worth talking about, yeah. but it doesn't affect how loved and valued you are. And I think that is, that's such a helpful thing to learn at an early age, because then you you're not as afraid of it anymore. Like, yeah. oh yeah, failure is going to happen. But into adulthood now, it's I'm going to be a little more willing to take risks. I think if we're just lawn mowing everything, yep. the first sign of you know any kind of adversity is going to feel so foreign. Like, oh gosh, I, I got to shut the whole thing down because I'm not I'm not used to feeling exactly. any any tension, any resistance. And I think, I mean, that's a really really important conversation to have. Again. Yeah. Uh, not as an expert in any way, shape, yeah, or form yeah. with uh, young kids at home. Yeah, but you get it. You get it. You can, you've can. you been around teenagers enough. You've been uh, in ministry long enough. And, and I'm just telling you, as someone who's further down the road than you, this is a 
This is not an easy one. Like it's not, it does not come naturally to let your children fail. Yeah. Okay. I should say it does not come naturally for me right. to right. let my children fail, but there's great value uh, in allowing them to kind of spread their wings, explore, even when that means they make mistakes. And then you're there to tell them you love them and to talk it through with them. Totally, man. That's a great conversation. Coming up next, an MIT professor meets the author of All Knowledge. How's, how's that for a teaser? Done. <laughs> it's coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, hey friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. The show looking to tackle a bunch of different issues, a bunch of different topics. The thing that I love about kind of our dynamic is that we don't always agree right uh sometimes we we disagree pretty aggressively yeah, we've stopped talking to each other it's true fair. we're not even friends anymore <laughs> it's true this this show has uh driven us apart i've now situated my seat so i'm looking away from you at all times <laughs> we're not even in the same studio That's what's going on. but we would love to hear from you you can find us on facebook at the common good radio show you can also go to 1160hope.com you can uh, text us now as well you can text the number 68683 and then in the message body, type CG for common good, and then your question, your comment, your thought, and uh, we'd love to interact with you there if you would like to uh, interact with us. And uh, Brian, you found this this pretty fascinating story from uh, Christianity Today, and the title I thought was really intriguing, an MIT professor meets the author of All Knowledge. Yeah. Tell us about it. So it's an MIT professor by the name of Rosalind Picard, uh, and she tells her story. I Sometimes I just love these articles where it's not about like an issue or a topic, but it's just a story right. That you're like, oh, man, that's intriguing. So uh, she talks about when she was in grade school, got straight A's, she's in high school, and there came an early time in her life where she kind of thought, you know, for lack of a better way, uh, faith in Jesus was kind of not um, – uh, it, it was for the dumb people, right? Like mm-hmm. it wasn't compatible uh, with her thoughts and her growing in her academics. And then she talks about how that kept going, but then over time – she comes to know Jesus like she's she's she hears a sermon and she begins reading the Bible and God makes a change in her life as the Holy Spirit tends to do. Yeah. Uh, and now she had a kind of a voracious kind of uh, appetite for the things of God. Uh, and now she talks about uh, the rest of the article, how she became a top professor or mm-hmm. a professor at a top university university, that being MIT uh, in her field. And, and, it, and at the same time, she became a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And that what she has increasingly learned is that those are not at odds with each other, but that those actually go hand in hand. And I want to read the last paragraph for you because I just think it's awesome. Because one of the things that we, I think, subtly do in churches and in academia is to pit uh, academics and science against faith. Like they're not compatible. Like for some reason we have to dumb ourselves down to follow Jesus. And she's going, that is the absolute untruth and it is unhelpful. Mm. And so she writes this. Let me talk to, let me read to you how she closes her article. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, Mm. the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today I walk humbly having received the most undeserved grace. Mm. I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ask for, filled with desire to keep learning and exploring. And I read that and I was like, man, amen to that. And forgive us. You know, we repent of like believing 
uh, that we have to turn our minds off to follow Jesus. So why why do you think that stigma exists? Why why do you feel like faith and academia have been, or at least seem at odds so so frequently? So I think one's probably a, a misunderstanding, if you will, of the word faith. That right the 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 desire of science is to be able to explain everything or as much as possible. Uh, and then there's this concept of faith that either the academics think is is just, um, uh, you know, is short-sighted or it's it's non-academic, if you will, saying, mm-hmm. oh, you just have to take in faith. And those who believe in faith are like, well, you can't explain everything, so I'm not even going to try. Um, so I think there's that. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that because we've pit- pitted the two against each other, a lot of times uh, non-believers in the field of academics use their academics to try to disprove God. And so hmm. um, I think that's some of it. And also we just get, uh, I don't know if you ever feel this way, when somebody asks a hard academic, you know, science question about the faith, I often get nervous. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. And um, But I love the phrase uh, an old friend of mine used to say, uh, he used to say, all truth is God's truth. And if all truth is in fact God's truth, then we can be confident. Yeah. We can be confident that the more we discover scientifically, it's not going to make God less likely or less needed um, and take that away. And so we can, you know, we can run after the sciences. We can run after the mathematics. We can run after these types of things and not be scared of them. You were friends with G.K. Chesterton? No, but is that did my friend steal the line from G.K. Chesterton? I think it's either him or Spurgeon. <laughs> Stole is maybe too strong a word, but yeah. Like, oh, my friend had this saying. I'm like, ah. My, my friend Chuck Spurgeon. <laughs> yeah. good, old, good, old, good old Chucky Spurge. It is, it is funny, though, when I think of like, um, you know, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yep, yep. I feel like we often kind of just glaze over the mind part, but Jesus seems to be of the belief that our mind is one of the ways that we love God. Yep. And we don't tend to think, I mean, even think about how we talk about love. We talk about falling in love. Like it's mm. this accidental, like, whoops, now I'm loving. And Jesus seems to be, I mean, this is, I'm kind of just riffing in the moment right now, but if our mind is one of the ways that we actually like love and serve God, then yep. it would make sense then that like research and study and, and that's, you know, this is not for everybody in the same capacity, but he seems to believe that our mind is one of the ways that we love God. And I I remember this, this quote from years ago by, by Galileo. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. Mm. That's we have these faculties. That's good. This idea that like, yep, you need to throw all of those away to believe Jesus because it was an accident that they were there in the first place. Yep. When you really get down to it, seems silly, but yet the stigma persists. Yes. That like you can't you can't really care about deeper, higher learning and also be a person of faith, yep. which is really unfortunate. That feels yep. like a like a PR nightmare for for why faith and science and faith and academia have been at odds yeah. for so long. It's one reason I appreciated very much my uh, college years at Wheaton. I went to Wheaton College, uh, and Wheaton is a liberal arts education. And so you're learning across, you know, you've got to take science classes, you've got to take English classes, you got to take, uh, you got to get your mathematics proficiency, all this kind of stuff. And one of the concepts behind a liberal arts education is to say the more that we learn across a large spectrum of things, 
the more we're going to understand about God. You know, right. you're going to learn right. about him in literature. You're going to learn about him in science. My faith was challenged when I went to Wheaton, and I had a Wheaton professor want to talk about the merits of evolution and where that comes from. I was like, whoa, I didn't, you know, I thought that was of the devil, you know? Right, right. Uh, or, or being in a philosophy class and having this brilliant philosophy professor begin to push on things that we'd always assumed, and it made mm. my faith stronger. Mm. Uh, and I'm forever thankful for having that education. I think when we as Christians are just like all things philosophy, English, science, all of these things are bad. We just need Bible. Uh, we're shutting ourselves off from all of these good things that God has created and, and that give us uh, just a greater understanding of the enormity of God. That like yes. as you're understanding astronomy, right, right. The, the things it tells us about God as these discoveries are being made, uh, God just becomes bigger and more mind-blowing. And then the fact that he loves us and the gospel becomes such good news, like we can't run away. Like I, I like that you brought up the verse, man. We can't run away from loving the God with all of our mind uh, and engaging that in, in our faith. Yeah, I think it is it is worth noting, too, that like there, I don't know, maybe, maybe I put too much hope in in these things, but sometimes I'm so encouraged when I meet really, really smart Christ followers. Yes, I'm like, okay, me too. I'm never going to be that smart, but if you and I still came to the same conclusion about the nature of the universe, yes. like I feel pretty good about Like there's a guy named uh, Francis S. Collins who yes. uh, is bonkers smart, but I remember seeing him years ago at the time. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, yes. um, which is a m- massive undertaking. And it was, a, uh, I think it was a youth conference even. And he said, if Francis any- Collins at a youth conference. Yeah, it was, big. In, it was incredible. But he yes. said, if anyone ever tries to make you feel stupid for following Jesus, ask them if they're the head of the Human Genome Project. <laughs> and I remember being like, mic like, drop. Boom. Yeah, I was like a kid. I was like, I'll never be the head of it. But, but he is. Yes. And he came to the same conclusion about Jesus and God and the nature of the universe. And I thought, Okay, so that that to me that to me was oh gosh that was always so encouraging. And there's a a, a quote that I, I used in a sermon uh, a long long time ago by uh, Robert Jastrow, who um, who worked with NASA for a long time. Yeah, and he said uh, for the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself. Over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And here's a guy who's like, for so long, rested in his intellectual prowess and is coming to this like awakening, much like the story that you shared of someone who's realizing just how much truth there is in scripture and in Jesus and that our brains, our intellect does not have to be at odds with our soul. In fact, yes. they, were, they were created to work in in unison. And I think, man, what what a reminder that we don't have to throw out our brains. In fact, Jesus would yes. encourage us to do the opposite, to love him with our brains. Yes, and to think that if we had to throw out our brains, as you said, uh, that that would actually be a great reason not to believe in God. Yeah. Like the God of the universe wants us to be dumb and to not think about these things because it might call him into question. I think that would be reason to kind of give up on this whole thing. Mm. But that instead, like you said, as we're engaging these things, it just points us to our creator is unbelievable. Yeah, no kidding, man. Well, coming up next, how a parent's affection shapes a child's happiness for life, particularly uh, coming off the heels of this uh, helicopter parent, lawnmower parent idea, how our affection is quite literally uh, shaping them and pointing them uh, for the years to come. I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating conversation coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. Our producer, Josh, is dancing right now. <laughs> so I'm just going to... We're going to let that go in your mind. <laughs> we should get that on video at some point. I know. Share it on the Facebook. Speaking of Facebook... Did you say I share it on the Facebook? Yeah, the Facebook. You can find us... <laughs> remember the first two weeks of the show? You yes. told everybody you can find us on Facebook.com. I do. People are like, oh, it's .com now? I'm oh. so old. <laughs> I'm no, so you're old. not. Yes. You can find us on Facebook, though, at uh, the Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. You can also text us, 68683. Type the, the letter CG for Common Good mm-hmm. in your message and then whatever your question is. And uh, this this particular story is, is not surprising to me, um, but it is fascinating to see some of the science behind it. And the headline is How a Parent's Affection Shapes a Child's Happiness for Life. Science supports the idea that warmth and affection expressed by parents to their children results in lifelong positive outcomes for those children. Yeah. Lifelong positive outcomes. In it's fact, crazy. In a 2010 uh, research, the Duke, uh, researchers at Duke University Medical School found that babies with very affectionate and attentive uh, parents grow up to be happier, more resilient, and less anxious adults. Yep. So it's this idea that it's not just... Uh, calming them in the moment, but there's like physiological and neurological benefits for like decades uh, following, which we, I mean, we, we see a lot of that, I think um, in the negative sense where kids that, that don't have that type of affection, particularly in third world countries, yeah, um, it doesn't just simply affect their like emotional health. It affects their physical health. And apparently the opposite is true that when, when there's, there's healthy physical affection, um, there's all sorts of like biological benefits, which you know, as a new parent, I find that really intriguing, yep, and also like really convicting. Like, how do I keep this, you know, out in front? It's really fascinating, man. When we read these studies that start to link scientifically and physiologically to things that we feel like we intrinsically know, right? Like, yeah, it matters if you are affectionate with your child. This one's like, no, we actually did studies that show there's long term effects to the, your uh, the you know, physical touch with your infant. And then even as they get older, this also makes me feel good. I'm the most uh, like cuddly parent that you'd ever know. So I'm going to bring this home. No, to you're my always kids. trying to cuddle with me too. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to bring the producer in. I am going to, I am going to bring uh, this study home and tell my kids, look, I'm doing you long-term benefits when I come over. Will that help your case with them? No. <laughs> no. They don't care about university of Notre no. Dame or UCLA no. or any. Okay. But I do think it's awesome. And, and it's challenging to us as parents, right? When we think about what can I do now to set my children up for long-term success, right? Mm. You know, I could do, I can help them with their homework. I can spend time with them. I can, uh, you know, read to them. I could just spend, be in their presence. And, and all of these are important. But now it's literally saying also showing them physical affection at a young, young age is going to set them up uh, not just for things like happiness and contentment and they're going to know that their parents love them, but also, you know, probably some other healthy side effects as well. Um, yeah, I think this is this is a wake-up call, too, for those of us who are busy and running all the time and think it doesn't matter. Yep. Spending time with your kids and just... Um, Spending time with your kids physically, I think, is is just important. Well, and it's it's worth noting too that there's uh, there's two sides to this. So, oxytocin is the the chemical in the brain that's released during the times that a person feels love or connection. You yep. know, they they say that um, that's why hugs are important, not just the frequency, but the length of hugs with loved ones, because that because um, that chemical is released in the brain. Mm. So it isn't just higher and lower levels of. Um, Oxytocin, it, it, it is also, um, so there's a, a stress hormone that uh, is raised in cases of um, deprived interaction. Yep. 
So if, if so, if someone uh, you know like grows up in an orphanage um, and they mm. they're lacking that physical touch, um, you'll you'll see higher levels of anxiety. Sad. Um, not just because there's less uh, oxytocin, um, but because there there is more of this uh, this stress hormone called cortisol that is um, having all sorts of like long term detrimental effects because of their lack yeah. of affection, which I think is man that that is it's it's maybe the most uh, accessible resource for all of us. Yeah. Physical affection. It's good. And yet in a, like an increasingly digital age, I think we're, we're actually finding less and less yeah. um, of that present. And I think, man, for the church, for the Christ followers to be leading the charge, I think, and like elevating the importance of things like this, mm. um, you know, so often it's easy to like fund programs, yep. you know, I'll just write a check or I'll donate online, which keep doing. That's really important. But sometimes, man, just that, physical and we talk about diatribo that likes time in invested together has like really important um medical biological effects so this yeah. this story suggests a couple of things how to bring more affection into your family's day and i just want to share them because i think they're really they're practical, really helpful uh first suggestion from the moment you bring your baby home from the hospital be sure to hold touch and rock them in your arms spend many precious moments caressing your baby so that their skin can touch your skin like mm. there's all sorts of uh Research found that the skin-to-skin contact with a baby is uh, is really really important. Yep. And I'm living in that reality right now. You yep. don't have babies at home, but I most certainly do. And uh, making that a priority is sometimes easier said than done. Yes, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, he's quiet for the first time all day. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah, just let him sleep. You know, I just remember that as a dad, though it was so fun just to have that baby just laying on your chest and just to sleep. You know, one of those quiet moments, like you said, it doesn't happen often. Right, but right. Where you just have this moment where you're like, nothing else matters. Like it's this true, is, man. I got my wife over there. I got this oh, baby here. What, a, what, what am I stressed about anything for? Seriously. Like, I love that. It's, it really is the best. Uh, number two, as they get older, be playful. Do fun activities like dancing or creating silly games, like uh, pretending to be a hugging monster or yeah. like like my boy's only 17 months and we we wrestle yeah all the time and it's it's so it's so much fun selfishly it like makes my day better i'm glad to know it's having biological benefits for him mm-hmm. <laughs> like i i could have had the most stressful day in the world but coming home and just wrestling with my boy is uh not the best oh my goodness i didn't i never anticipated how much i would actually love it yep i don't know is that is that a thing that happens in your household absolutely and uh there is something about kids and just family, not just kids, but wife, even my dog. There's something about getting home that just relieves stress for me that mm. just, you know, and then they come and, you know, it's not the same. Like when your kid probably runs to you, like my dog runs to me, my kids, <laughs> my kids are kind of on the couch. Like, hey, dad, like, but I know they're happy. I'm right, right, right. Like, so it's different, but it's still like that. Okay. I'm with yes. my tribe. I'm with my people. Yeah, like, totally. This is good. Okay. So this next one's one I, I wouldn't have thought of on my own, but I, Actually, the more I think about it, I think it's a pretty good idea. Set a reminder to make sure hugging is a part of your daily routine. That's awesome. Which, again, I'm in, like, little kid mode. And like what you were just mentioning, you know, that may be a little tough with a teenager. Like, hey, it's 3.15. <laughs> the alarm went Time off. to hug dad. <laughs> but, like, I, I do the same thing with, like, drinking water. I know I'm supposed to drink X amount of ounces. Huh. And I just I sometimes get so buried in work that I don't. And if this article is is true the way that I think it is, we should we should be setting the same types of alarms for physical contact. It's it's really that important. And I think, um, you know, actually setting up and that feels strange because affection, you know, we sort of glorify as like spontaneous. But I don't know, man, maybe making that a priority by actually scheduling it in your day is, uh, is a way that's, I think that's good. Helpful. And then this last one, I think, is, is so important. Use affection while disciplining your child. 
as you talk to them about what they did wrong, put your hand on their shoulder or give them a hug at the end of the conversation to ensure them that if uh, even if you're not pleased with their behavior, that you still love them yes. unconditionally. I man, I think that I think that's so important. And I imagine again, mine are little, yours a little older. Um, that's got to be harder when you're like really fired up about something that they did. Absolutely. Uh, yes. When you're really mad and, uh, it can be harder, but you know, underlying this, I've, I said it earlier in the show, I've said it multiple times. I have a, a daughter who's a freshman in high school and there becomes, you start to fear things, you know, as, as they start to kind of spread their wings a little bit. Yeah. And I have no scientific proof for this, but I'm a big believer that, that the, physical affection and the things that I've taught her and my, and my wife have taught her through the years are going to hopefully make it less likely that she's going to be running to other people, namely high school boys looking yeah. for physical affection right. in an unhealthy way. Right. Doesn't right. guarantee it. It doesn't, you know, but it, I, I think these deposits that we make as they're growing up, mm. don't just make them happier, more well-adjusted, but also makes them probably more self-confident and, and they learn things as opposed to just like being needy and needing these things. So uh, this is huge, man. And I, like I said, I'm I'm a I'm a hugger. I'm a <laughs> and so this is right up my alley. But I do think that we could get so busy. And this is coming off the heels of the story we talked about a couple segments ago about the snow plowing parents. Yeah, like maybe the biggest role for us as parents is not just to clear the way for our kids so that they can be quote unquote successful, but maybe it's make sure that they know that we love them, that we care for them, that we physically love that we will hug them. Yep. That they that they're safe with us, whether they are failures, you know, societally, culturally, or whether they're the, you know, they, they just achieve off the charts. That doesn't change how we feel about them. And as they know that, maybe that's setting them up for a more healthy adulthood. Well, and I, I do appreciate that the story ends by saying, hey, be careful not to go overboard. Don't smother them, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of in the line of uh, love language stuff. Like some of your kids, physical touch will be right up the rally. Others like let their no be no when they, they you know they need a word of affirmation yes. or they need something different than a hug right now and uh, i think keeping that in mind absolutely because that you can create a detrimental posture towards yes. affection by smothering them that will also affect them into adulthood no doubt. but either no way doubt. making it a priority man I, I feel convicted by this even like in my sleep deprivation <laughs> to make sure that i'm prioritizing uh, a physical affection with my yeah. with my kids is man i think just absolutely uh, critical well, like uh, like we like to do at the end of every show. Love to do. <laughs> yeah, you, man, new format too, by the way. So our our uh, interweb insanity has gotten uh, just a little bit more insane, and uh, that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A show really about taking a deep dive into some serious topics, but because we know that sometimes that can be uh, a little overwhelming, right. we like to end with a little fun, and uh, as we like to say, the internet never disappoints. Always, it's undefeated. It, it's undefeated, <laughs> exactly right. It, every single day, there's new insanity to talk about, and uh, we shared, too, that apparently people have been using these as sermon illustrations, yes. which is super, super fascinating to me. You can uh, learn more. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. If you're just joining us, the show is podcasted, so you can find us on any podcast platform you like. And again, just a disclaimer. <laughs> you love the disclaimer. We've, we've adjusted the way that we've done these a little bit, so our producers have uh, picked a couple of stories, and uh, Brian and I have not seen them. Sight unseen. So we're going to flip them over, and we're going to share them with you, and uh, hopefully they're not terrible. So, Brian, why don't, why don't you kick uh, us off? You love to make me go first. Sure. Boom. Wisconsin. 
Wisconsin. Man facing uh, eighth OWI. What is that? Operating while intoxicated, maybe? Sure. Uh, tried to drink in front of a deputy. Not a good idea. <laughs> Authorities in southern Wisconsin say 56-year-old Cambria man arrested on suspicion of his eighth OWI tried to drink in front of a deputy. According to the uh, sheriff, a vehicle was reported in a ditch uh, in the town of Fountain Prairie Saturday night. The caller reported the driver wasn't hurt, but something, quote, wasn't right with the driver. The caller gave the man a ride home. When a deputy arrived, the man had returned in another car. When the man was told he would be arrested, authorities said he tried to grab an open bottle of liquor from the vehicle and drink from it. Oh, gosh. That's not... Drinking? Come on. Come on, Wisconsin. I'm drunk. <laughs> Why don't you get... give us that again, Josh? Have you been we... drinking? <laughs> I'm not drunk. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. My turn. Sight on scene. Arizona. Uh, bicyclist brawl right in the middle of Phoenix intersection. Nice. Not a great idea. Crazy video shows the moment a brawl broke out between two bicyclists Wednesday afternoon near 16th Street and Camelback. Uh, Aiden Sanchez said he was waiting at a stoplight when he saw two men fighting, so he pulled out his phone to capture it on video. Of course, <laughs> you need to always remember yep. that. Everyone's got a video camera Don't with break them. up the fight. Film the fight. <laughs> right. Very weird and strange, said Sanchez. It's kind of one of those moments where you're like, is this really happening right now? In the video, the two men start fighting in the middle of the intersection, but move the brawl onto the sidewalk, punching and pushing each other all the way. It was kind of a shocker, said Sanchez. Sure. It was so <laughs> random. You're just expecting to see cars go by, not two guys going at it. <laughs> From there, the video showed a driver getting out of his car and breaking up the fight. It was nice. Uh, just to show that there are good people out there trying to stop people from hurting each other instead of egging it on and encouraging people to fight, said Sanchez. Hey, you, let's fight. <laughs> Name's fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. From Nevada, man tries Ocean's Eleven heist at the Bellagio Hotel and Casino. On Friday night, an armed man entered a packed Bellagio and demanded money from a caged poker area. He then fled and tried to steal a vehicle that had pulled into the valet spot, oh, but was goodness. immediately confronted. The suspect fired his gun and struck one of the officers in a vest. The second officer fired back and hit the officers. Both the officer and the suspect were transported. The suspect is arrested. <laughs> People like this are a menace to decent society. <laughs> All right. New York. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Oh, I don't know that Keith. I'm allowed to say this one. You can. It's a quote. Okay, here we go. Quote, mystery pooper <laughs> rocks New York Broadway auditions. New York City's theater company. Uh, community may be the target of a mystery pooper, according to the New York Post. Did I mention that we didn't choose these stories? Keep going. Did I say this a disclaimer <laughs> out there? The covert scat attacks first occurred February 26th during auditions for the Magic Mike musical. <laughs> Performer uh, Ali Faye Manka said a show rep stepped on a, oh boy, a fresh pile yeah, during tryouts. <laughs> Jeez Louise. The human waste was allegedly much too fresh to have been carried in from the street accidentally or otherwise. Are you sure this story is appropriate for children? <laughs> no, we're not. Last one from Colorado. Family believes their house is being robbed after hearing a crash in the night, only to find out it's a moose. Oh, my word. It turned from nightmare to relief for one Colorado family. They thought they were being uh, uh, robbed. But when a police arrived on the scene, it wasn't a burglar they discovered. It was an adult moose. The moose had been walking outside the house. When she fell into a window, everybody was okay. <laughs> Seen it, covered it. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. We are farmers. Ah, nice. You think farmers will pay us for that spot? No, I don't think so, but it's still good. Not likely. <laughs> That's another day in the books. Never a dull moment here at the nope. Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.